0: My goodness, is there a Wookiee in the house? Well, well, well. Hello, Chewbacca. I've been waiting for this moment because it has finally arrived this Friday the 25th. We have Han Solo. Hits this galaxy uh, with Solo, a Star Wars story. And that is indeed our favorite Wookiee, Chewbacca. So... Very exciting, very exciting show today um, because you are going to get to hear me talk about, now that the embargoes are lifted, I'm going to talk about Han Solo, uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story. You're going to hear a few clips of what Ron Howard had to say uh, about the making of the film, directing the film, and uh, all kinds of fun stuff. And we've got some really terrific guests today. Um, we're going to have Mike Roma, writer-director of, of a lovely, charming little independent film, Dating My Mother, um, that stars Catherine Erb, Patrick Riley, James LaGrosse, one of my favorite indie actors uh, who I first uh, experienced and saw uh, in a feature film called Bitter Feast back in 2010 that was written and directed by Joe Maggio. Um, and of course, and then Kathy uh, and Jimmy is also in dating my mother. Um, Michael be here at the quarter hour mark, and at the half hour mark. Hopefully, we have no catastrophes. I'm looking at my phone and my cell phone, and it looks like publicists tried to call me out of New York. I don't know why, um, but they did. Uh, <laughs> Bill Holderman, writer director of the smash hit that just opened this weekend book club and co-writer Aaron Sims. They are joining us at the half hour mark of the show. Um, very excited for those of you that haven't seen book club, see it, see it, see it. Uh, we're going to get into great detail on that one, but suffice to say when you have Diane Keaton, Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, Mary Steenburgen, Andy Garcia, Don Johnson, Craig T. Nelson, Ed Bagley, Jr, all together, not and plus Katie Asselton and Alicia Silverstone, you are in for an absolute treat. the writing is it is rapier, it is witty. These women have they 're as funny as ever Candace Bergen is to die for, um, and of course she 's paired with Richard Dreyfus uh, for. One of the funniest scenes in the entire film. So I can't wait to talk to Bill and Aaron at the half-hour mark. But for those of you just joining us, this is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here at AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time where we go behind the lens, below the line, and with live guests, with pre-recorded interviews. Um, And Behind the Lens is exactly, it is my favorite part of filmmaking. Uh, As much as I love the actors, it's what goes into the performance. It is directors, cinematographers. Um, Many of my regular readers and listeners, you know my great love for cinematography and sound design. And uh, we've had some amazing guests in that regard, and we've got more lined up for you in the coming months. Um, But right now, let's talk a little bit about Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, You know, it was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when we first met a man who would become one of the most beloved scoundrels of cinema and beyond, Han Solo. Uh, A a little while in the making, written by Jonathan Kasdan and Lawrence Kasdan. Lawrence Kasdan knows the Star Wars universe, I think, almost as well as George Lucas. um, Have delivered a script that takes us back into the the origination story of Han Solo. How Han met Chewie. How Han met Lando Calrissian. uh, A friendship that we saw play out in the original, in the... Middle trilogy of uh, of the of the of the Star Wars saga. This takes us back in time. We find out how Han became Han. Um, we see relationships established, trust betrayed, um, and we see a man that starts out going through the galaxy, talking about, "I've got a great feeling about this." Which, as we all know, by the time we get to Star Wars A New Hope and meet Harrison Ford as Han Solo, um, Han doesn't have a good feeling anymore. He's got a bad feeling about everything. But um, while he has a good feeling, another good feeling uh, that we have is Ron Howard directing Solo A Star Wars Story. Everybody may recall the turmoil of the original directors being removed because of creative differences. And Ron stepped in. Uh, I can honestly say, having seen the film, that was one of the wisest choices that could have been made. Um, Ron Howard focuses on character. His films, when you think about all of them over the years, yes, he has action set pieces in quite a few of them, but it's all story driven, character driven, the emotionality of the characters, and the connectivity of the characters. He was the perfect choice. To bring in for Solo. A Star Wars story. Um. On a technical level. Beautifully done. Uh, First first opening scene is a little iffy. I gotta say that. Right off the bat. But Ron teaming up with. Cinematographer Bradford Young. uh, Whose work you know from Arrival. Selma. And tiny little indie. That introduced us to director D. Reese. Pariah. Um. Uh, Young cinematography is gorgeous. We really get a sense of the galaxy and the various places that shape Han Solo. Uh, Similarly, production design, Neil Lamont. Neil Lamont also knows the Star Wars galaxy and the canon very well. Uh, He worked on Force Awakens and Rogue One. Where... One of the uh, the technical levels where there's great proficiency, however, is in the editing. Pietro Scalia, he is masterful. Uh, I think he's very underrated in the in the industry. Um, you know his work from Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, The Martian, The Quick and the Dead, The Great Raid. And I mentioned The Quick and the Dead because so much of what we see in Solo a Star Wars story, it is a bang bang shoot 'em up western. And under Ron Howard's direction, uh, with the sky as a canvas and a story to rival that of John Ford Monument Valley, you know, Han Solo truly does ride with the best of them, be it out in the stars in the galaxy or cowboys down in the old American West. Um, The allegory is wonderful. The metaphor is wonderful. But... It all comes down to Han Solo and Alden Ehrenreich as Han Solo. Donald Glover as Lando Calrissian. Uh, our new Chewbacca taking over for Peter Mayhew. Junis Suatamo. We've got a new droid. Of course, we have a new droid, a female droid, L3, voiced by Phoebe Waller Bridge. Amelia Clark is on board. Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany. Avengers. Star Wars, he's just hitting it all, as is Woody Harrelson, Hunger Games franchise, Planet of the Apes franchise, and now Star Wars franchise. Uh, Just incredible, impeccable casting. Every performance is great. Uh, But let's take a little listen and hear what Ron Howard had to say at the press conference the other week as he talked about... You know, tackling the gal- stepping in and tackling the galaxy, working in camera versus VFX and CGI with the big set pieces and in action, in action uh, that takes place. And also, coming in late, and the big thing everybody always looks for in a Ron Howard movie, casting his brother Clint. So take a listen to Ron Howard, talk a little bit about Solo, a Star Wars story.
1: Well, it's its own. It's the galaxy far, far away, and uh, you know. And you, when you, you, the level of anticipation is really unlike anything that I've done. Even some pretty big titles with a lot of a lot of fan interest, and you, 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 you know, you fall into it, and it's uh, it's amazing. It was a little bit. I began to recognize, you know, something similar to the Beatles documentary that I took on. Because I, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I like experimenting, I like to take some chances, I'm not too, you know, not too, not too worried about the outcome I want, I just have the creative experience, and, and I sort of felt that way about jumping into a Star Wars movie, but I also felt that way about jumping into the Beatles documentary, and then I could tell from the moment it was announced, Ron, don't this up. That was the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and I, so I immediately, you know, felt the same thing as related to this. Really? And I thought, well, of course, of course, but, you know, the fans care and they, and they should care. As great as visual effects and CGI is, even the, the, all, all the great CGI um, VFX supervisors will tell you, is, you know, in camera is, 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 is always what you want to go for first. And, uh, and, and so, you know, with, with the Millennium Falcon and with the, the great sets and so forth, the approach here always was try to get as much in-camera as you could and then, and then build from that. And that's what's so magical and amazing about ILM and what they can do to make, uh, you know, the, the, the experience as palpable and immersive as it could possibly be. It's a blast because the people around um, a, a movie like Solo are so dedicated to not just what's existed before but what else they could do within that framework within that, that universe that galaxy and creatively it's just unbelievably stimulating for a filmmaker I did come into it you know uh, uh, late and and uh, there was a lot of a lot of work that Phil and Chris had, had done there unfortunately this Creative differences had created, you know, there was this circumstance where they were, they, you know, they were not going to carry on, uh, and within that, there, there, you know, there were a lot of things that were really strong and already worked, and we knew we wanted to keep, and then other things that hadn't been done yet. And other scenes that we, I was given the opportunity to sort of experiment with and explore. And I sat down with with Larry and John, and we started talking about this, that, and the other. And and there was this uh, this this, uh, this this great sort of scene with with L three, uh, and, and and it just sort of came up in conversation, it, it, you know, that L three needs somebody to be pissed off at. And I said, my brother.
0: And, yes, L3 does get quite pissed off at Ron's brother, Clint, who actually steals the scene uh, that he is in, in Solo, A Star Wars Story. You know, I, I want to give a shout-out to a very old and dear friend of mine who is actually watching on Facebook Live. For those of you listening, you can watch on the AdrenalineRadio.com uh, Facebook page. We are streaming live. But I want to give a shout-out to my old pal, that's been, got over 45 years now. We've known each other. Laura Perkins-Dolt, who is uh, sitting back in Norristown, Pennsylvania, actually watching us right now. So that's really cool. That's one thing that I love is uh, a lot of people that have been with me, and we've all gone through journeys together, and now they get to actually watch live. They don't have to wait for a video of the show afterwards, Um and it's always more fun, and you can see all the cool stuff when you watch live. Um, all the swag and all the stuff you can go buy. Uh, and uh, for not just Han Solo, but for the Avengers and uh, a plethora, plethora of things. We always have fun stuff. But I got to say, my favorite merchandise to come from Solo a Star Wars story are Han's dice that always hung in the Millennium Falcon. And uh, you may recall last week I mentioned, and I'll remind you of it again, these are the dice that are so key in a very, very poignant scene between between Luke and Leia in The Last Jedi. So I got to tell you, my favorite piece of solo merchandise are these dice. And these little suckers are heavy, too. Uh, So you can find plenty, plenty of Han Solo merchandise now added to the Star Wars canon of merchandise. You know, something that's very important, I know a lot of people have been questioning this about Solo, are the performances of Alden Ehrenreich and Donald Glover in playing Han and Lando, respectively. These are not caricatures. Uh, They embrace the very essence of who these men are in their later lives, Uh, particularly Alden. Um, We all know Harrison Ford gave Han some very noticeable tells that were just through his very own movement, such as the way Han flips open very surreptitiously the holster of his blaster, the way he holds the blaster, the way he twirls the blaster. Um, Little touches like that Similarly, the character of Lando is done by Billy D. Williams. You know, Billy D. always pulled up the collar on all the capes, on Lando's capes. Lando had to have capes. Well, we find out about Lando's real love of capes uh, with Donald Glover's portrayal. Um, there is a whole closet full of capes. I'm warning you, fashionistas, now. Yes, there is a closet full of Lando capes that you will see unearthed and unveiled in Solo, a Star Wars story. But again, Donald, these tiny little nuances that we will recognize visually. And I love that Ron and cinematographer Bradford Young, they hold on, they capture those moments and they give us those touchstones. And throughout the whole film, even though we're meeting these characters in the past, when these, when they are new, fresh, and the relationships are being created, we meet them And we already, we know them. We know who these people are. But to see the journey that each of them goes on and the partnerships that are created and the relationships that are made, that is the real joy in watching this film. Plus, it's got some really, really, really cool uh, action going on. So it's in theaters on the 25th. See it, see it, see it. Uh, I already want a sequel to it because of the timeline from this film to when Star Wars A New Hope starts. So, I want a sequel already. So, having said that, there is my soapbox about Solo and my undying love for Ron Howard in the film. But now, we're going to move on, and Mike Roma is joining us. Hello, Mike. Welcome.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Well, I am very thrilled to have you. What? This, Dating My Mother, what a fun movie, and I have to say, hearing the title without reading anything about the film or seeing it, I thought one (laughs) thing, but then I'm watching the film, and I'm thinking, what a sly little devil you are, Um, you really, you set us up with a great double entendre, meaning of Dating My Mother, because as we meet Mom, Joan, and uh, her son... Danny um it almost seems initially that Danny and Joan are a couple and dating but then as we exactly as but then as the story develops then it's Danny doesn't really want to see his mom dating anyone his mom starts trying to date so it's very you very cleverly done in that regard Mike um so right off the bat it catches your attention so I'm curious, where did this story come from? Did you do this to your mother? Just going to ask you point <laughs> blank: Did you do well, this don't to we your mother? We all do
2: terrible things to our mother.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the list is too long to count.
2: I know. So, so this story is uh, semi autobiographical. I was living with my mom after college and trying to think about what I needed to do for the rest of my life. You know, one of those nice existential moments. And um, I started writing this story just based off of my own experiences because I saw the humor in my situation, which was that my mom and I almost were acting like a couple. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then she was, you know, in the dating game at the same time, and I was looking around being like, well... I don't necessarily have a lot of my friends from high school living here anymore. Maybe I should start dating again, but finding it very difficult to in New Jersey when not necessarily a lot of people are out of the closet or comfortable with their sexualities, or even I wasn't sure if I would be staying much longer in Mm -hmm. Jersey. So it was was a a weird situation to navigate, so I wanted to come at this traditional uh, post-college story through this unique angle of a mother-son relationship
0: well it definitely is a very unique angle i mean i have two nephews one of whom is 25 graduated and he's moved back home with my brother and sister-in-law um so Uh we're seeing this more and more but then you add this twist of the closeness of the relationship between mom and son and that's something that is unique you know, was it difficult for you to find that balance, though? Because you do, eventually, you do shift. It's a very gradual shift as we see mom growing and Danny not wanting to grow. Danny really wanted to just stay where he was and, you know, flop on the couch and, or in the bed uh, with mom and eat mom's food and uh, just go hang out like everything was status quo like it had been when he was in high school. So I'm trying. How did you go? How did you go about finding, you know, that balance to develop the gradual shift? So it's also not culture shock to us when Danny finally grows some balls and actually starts taking charge of his own life.
2: Right. Well, I really wanted to do a different dynamic than we've seen before, which is a mom who doesn't necessarily she loves her son, but she doesn't necessarily want to coddle him forever. She's ready for him to move on. She's not afraid of an emptiness. Mm-hmm. Essentially. I think that was really important. Of course she still loves her son, but I wanted her world to revolve around more than just him. And I think maybe the son was Danny's character is getting a little bit too complacent in his uh cushy lifestyle, <laughs> if you will. His version of domestic bliss is just spending every day with his mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Yes, I mean, he's her her fashion consultant, you know, her fashion consultant, her food consultant, her hairstyle consultant. Uh, It's, you know, she, but she really, she came out on the good end of the deal on that one, too. With Danny, she didn't have to pay, (laughs) she didn't have to pay for a stylist or a hairdresser or any, or, you know, a chef. Danny was there to do it all.
2: Yeah, I wanted to show the closeness between particularly mothers and their gay sons as well. And hearing these back, it, it almost sounds like a, you know, a, a stereotypical relationship in a way, but I wanted to go uh, explore, explore that on screen because I don't necessarily think that you've seen a lot of gay sons with their mothers on screen before, or gay characters, period, which is a very unfortunate fact that I, that I think Hollywood is starting to contend with, mm-hmm. especially within the past year of uh, diversity that's been uh, coming up in the industry. Uh, and the conversation that's been ongoing. So, yeah, I don't. I, I mean, mom definitely lucked out when it came to having a son who knew all of the, the <laughs> tips and tricks to give her when it comes to dating. But at the same time, she, I think, gives him a lot of power when it comes to, you know, empowering him to take charge of his own life and. And giving him the support system and the encouragement and the confidence that he needs to, to grow on his own mm-hmm.
0: Now was it always your intent to direct this as well Mike or were you just going to script it because I know you'd done some shorts um, so was it all were you always going to direct this one and what made this the per- yes. the per- what made this the perfect one for you to jump into the feature directorial world?
2: So, I've always wanted to make a movie. I mean, I feel like (laughs) a million people can say that, too, right? (laughs) But with this one in particular, I just know for first-time feature directors, it usually comes from their own experiences, their own truth that they're trying to put on screen. And those are the ones that I think resonate the most with audiences and the ones that they have the most insight to provide. So... I was looking for a story that I thought would be would do that for me, and this one just happened to come, and I really fell in love with it, and I couldn't imagine not directing it. Mm-hmm. I also view myself as both a writer and a director, so I write in order to direct, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so while I'm writing, I'm even thinking about, you know, the different directing styles that I'm going to do, like when I put the online dating experiences happening in real life, uh that was an intentional decision because I knew that that would be something fun to direct mm-hmm. as opposed to showing a screen of a screen. So while they're going on the dating app um, right. in the movie, these characters are appearing in real life and they're having in real life conversations
0: mm-hmm.
2: despite it being on these digital platforms.
0: Yeah, no, that was really unique. I was, that was some, it really struck me, and I thought that was quite, it was a bold thing to do because we don't see that done. But it worked so well where, you know, you are, instead of the virtual world, it's as if you're in the room together. So you're, you're eliminating that digital divide until, poof, it's suddenly gone because communication has ceased. Um, but it really worked well. Um, and that was a nice surprise that I saw with your directorial style. Um, You know, something else you did. You brought along your cinematographer, Griffin Yu, who'd worked with you before on your shorts, correct?
2: Yeah, we had worked on the web series, Danny the Manny, which we had done just a couple of months before the movie, actually. Mm -hmm.
0: What were the considerations that you and Griffin had to develop your visual tonal bandwidth? You keep the film light. You keep the thematics light. The whole film, it's light, buoyant. But then you're shooting in New Jersey. You've got some nice property and houses that you're shooting. Um, by the way, the pool, the pool is fabulous. I want that pool. Uh, <laughs> Me too. But, I mean, so what, what kind of influences did you and Griffin have when designing your visuals?
2: So we really took the visual style from our web series and just tried to elevate it as much as possible. But we're looking at a handheld style that is both effective in terms of budget because you're able to shoot things (laughs) on the fly a little bit faster. There's a natural style, uh, therefore we don't need as many lights, which is also good for budget. But beyond the budget, of course, is the artistic direction that we're looking for and looking to portray and convey in the story. And I would have, you know... I allocated our resources differently. If I thought it needed to be on a tripod or sticks, so or needed these big lights and everything else to really tell the story, but I think that this is an intimate story between a mother and a son, and they are coming of age. And I think for a story like that, you want it to be realistic. You want you don't want it to be super super stylized.
0: Right. However,
2: when we were talking about this one IRL dating situation technique that we wanted to have sprinkled throughout the movie that we really had to just set the parameters of the rules and when is it going to be something that we see off screen. Maybe, you know, someone's looking at a screen, but we don't see the person that they're talking to versus when they're appearing in real life. So we mm-hmm. had a lot of conversations about that to set the rules to make sure that it was consistent throughout the movie and brought a unique style to this more realistic, natural approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and something, I don't know how you pulled it off, but your cast is amazing. You get Catherine Herb. You get one of my favorites, James LaGrosse. Um, as I said at the top of the show, mm-hmm. I have been watching. I first took note of James uh, eight years ago, with, or nine years ago, with Bitter Feast, um, where he co-starred with Joshua mm-hmm. Leonard. I mean, it is a deliciously dark and decadent film, and I just thought he was fabulous, so I have tried to follow him ever since then um so to see him as mom's boyfriend chester here i mean i just thought that was fabulous and of course you get kathy and jimmy um you know come on hocus pocus everybody knows kathy um how how did you as a first-time filmmaker assemble amass this cast you've got named talent here
2: I'm certainly very lucky. Um, <laughs> I, so, so going back to this web series that I did with Griffin a few months before, I used that as a visual sample, and I sent that along with letters to who I wanted to cast. So when writing the part of Lisa, I was thinking about Kathy and Jimmy, same with James and Chester. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to express that to them in the letters that I sent along with a link to the to the web series to say, here's the script, here's the story that I want to tell, here's why I think you're right for the role, and here's something that I've done that shows you the style, the tone, and the follow through that I have, and uh want to present you know in order to get this other movie made mm-hmm. uh when it came to, to Catherine irby i saw her in mistress america a year before i had just finished writing the script and i was wondering while i was writing who exactly i wanted to be this mom character which is think of a particular a particular kind of energy and traits that that joan has of positivity and 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 emotional intelligence with, with this still sort of exuberant um almost naivete when it comes to certain aspects Mm -hmm. of of dating and stuff, but I think that that character needs it so full of joy. Mm -hmm. And I was watching Mistress America and saw Catherine Irby in it, and her character was nothing like it, but there was just something about her presence that rang very Joan to me. So I expressed that in the letter as well. And luckily my words in the letter also, uh, you know, resonated with the people reading them. So... So Kathy was the first one to sign on to the script, and that made getting James and, and Catherine <laughs> that much easier. And I was just very lucky that no one was a diva on set; everyone was there for the work. It was awesome. I'm very, very fortunate.
0: You know, and the thing as I was watching Catherine, I kept thinking, as Joan, I kept thinking more of her her playing mom to Charlie in uh, the Mighty Ducks D two. Um, <laughs> yes, that's how I mean immediately. That's, I mean, it was, it was perfectly, you perfectly cast her as Joan because, you know, we saw that same kind of positivity and upbeat factor with, you know, as the mom in D2. So that was brilliant. But everything here really rises and falls on the casting of Danny and finding Patrick Riley. How did, mm-hmm. how, and his chemistry with Catherine. So I'm curious how you, you know, how you found Patrick.
2: He and I went to USC together. So I was in the film program and he was in the acting BFA program. Mm -hmm. And we had worked together throughout college. And uh, I just started writing with him in mind. And he brings meaning and subtext to the words that I write that I didn't even think about. And it's just been such an amazing collaborative experience. To work with him, and we 're currently working on a few new projects too so God bless usC for for uh, the network and putting us putting our paths uh, in the same line, having them cross
0: well, I got news for you. Patrick is perfectly cast, and when you mention subtext and nuance to the character of Danny, absolutely Patrick really brings a, a, an emotional gravitas. Because while Danny may seem Mm -hmm. on the outside rather flippant and just, you know, happy-go-lucky in his comfy lifestyle, sponging off of mom, waiting for a letter or email to to pop up, um, Patrick gives us, you know, we see in his facial expression, we see some of the sadness and some of the disappointment and the uncertainty of what Danny is going through, that nothing is happening and he really doesn't know what he's doing. And similarly, when we get to the third act, as he where he is in the library with a writer's group and all, total, total facial nuance shift, which really gives much more depth to the character. So well done. So well done in casting, Patrick.
2: Thank you. I'm going to pass your kind words along to him for sure. I'm seeing him later this afternoon. So,
0: (laughs) Well, you know, so I've got to ask you, because we're almost out of time, Mike. I, I want to find out, what did you personally take away from this experience of writing and now your feature directorial directing Dating My Mother that you can now take forward and will take forward into your future projects as you develop them?
2: There are too many lessons to learn from making your first feature, honestly. It was sort of like a grad school for me. I think one of the biggest things, though, was just how important the script is, because that will inform every other choice that you make down the line. And that can, you know, the payoff to being very, very diligent with the script, you may not even see until post-production, and... Like, for example, in post-production, I had to slice off a couple of minutes from scenes because I just wrote them too long. So learning about the pacing and learning, oh, I wish I cut to a new scene here, or I wish this information was brought to the top of the scene. That's what the artistic process is, though, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. But hopefully I can get closer to that um, imagined ideal Right, that I have every time with every with every project that comes next. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it gets closer and closer to the vision that I had before I started. I think right. I got pretty close to dating my mother, but I'm really excited for the next project to see if I can get a little bit closer.
0: Well, I can't wait to see your next project, Mike. Um, I will be following you along now on your on your cinematic journey. You have a great eye, you have a great sense of vision and directorial style, and storytelling, and I can't wait to see what you do next. And, of course, everybody can see Dating My Mother now because it's on VOD and digital, correct?
2: It is, yeah. iTunes, Amazon, and Vudu, and all the other fun uh, VOD services right now. So you can go to Dating My Mother to check out all the platforms.
0: Well, Mike, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back on the show again. I want to stay in touch and keep track of of where you're going. You have an open invitation. Thanks Thanks so much, Debbie. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Mike Roma, writer-director of Dating My Mother. And now they're on together. I am beyond thrilled. Bill Holderman and Aaron Sims are with us. Book Club. Hello, Bill and Aaron. Welcome to Behind the Lens.
3: Hi, hello, thank you. Thank
0: you, you. hi. Uh, Guys, I am so excited to have you. I am so thrilled. I love this film. You know, everybody is talking about the box office, the top three this weekend, Deadpool, Avengers Infinity War, and Book Club. For my money, your cast, they're their own superheroes um, that round out the top three at the box office. This is a fabulous Uh movie.
4: Thank
0: you Thank so
3: much. You. I really appreciate it. We've been saying they are they are the real superheroes, and and
0: we're number one for human beings. That's what I keep saying. <laughs> oh my god! I gotta tell you, you know, I couldn't make a press screening, so I said I told the reps I said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. I'll pay you to go see this movie. I saw it Thursday night, opening night. I loved it so much. I went back yesterday at eleven o'clock in the morning to see it again. Um. Oh my God, we love you! And, Thank you. You know, and I have to tell you, what was so entertaining yesterday morning is there? There, you know, eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning. There were probably about twenty, twenty-five people in the theater, all women, all over fifty, one man. He laughed harder than every woman in there. He was. We love
4: that. We're uh, yeah. We're hoping. We're hoping that. Um, some of these men get dragged out there and enjoy themselves because I think it's a, it's a movie that plays for both uh, men and women.
3: Yeah, we've been in a bunch of screenings where there's a, there seems to be one man in the audience that's just laughing beyond hysterically. So you, that, that's actually really fun to hear.
0: I mean, I was blown away. Um, yeah, he was laughing louder than, than any of the women that were in the audience. He was loving it. <laughs> Um, particularly, he loved. I need his name.
4: We're going to send yeah. him.
0: <laughs> I can tell you, he laughed the loudest at Craig T. Nelson in the third act, uh, and of course, <laughs> you know, and I, they, he was sitting behind me with his wife, and I could hear her, and she was like, when Andy Garcia came on screen, she was all for Andy Garcia, and it was, it was like, oh well. So, and I could hear like the tap on his arm about C, C, C. Uh, so it is definitely, the film is definitely resonating with audiences out there. Um, and, you know, and I just I just adore it. I love it. Candace Bergen and Richard Dreyfus together, I could watch forever. Um,
3: Aren't they amazing?
0: The two of them. The
3: response has been incredible. It's, it's really pretty fun to see people going online and talking about how much they love the movies. It's a great feeling.
0: Uh, well, you know, something I've got to ask the two of you, because I know, Bill, this is your directorial debut. Um, you have been in the Robert Redford. Yeah. You've been producing Robert Redford films for quite a while. All of them I have seen. All of them I love, particularly The Company You Keep and The Conspirator. Two of my favorite Redford films that you were, that you were behind but now you step into the directorial chair with this as your feature. But I am more, most curious about the two of you, the fact this is based upon a book club of women of a certain age, as I like to say, the ARP crowd, where we get our 15% off at Denny's. Um, mm-hmm. But you take the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. That is the basis of this film. Uh, and you guys... Gave those books to your mother and stepmother. Seriously?
4: Yes. That is a true. That is a true story, and uh, and one that's now out in public that I may never live down for the rest of my life. Uh,
3: um,
4: but yeah, it was it was a fun. It was a fun gift. Um,
3: Bill did it first. Bill had the idea all on his own to send the trilogy to his mom back in 2012, which I thought was out of control, amazing, and shocking. And so I just couldn't stop laughing, so I decided <laughs> to do the same thing for my mom and my stepmom. And that is, that's how we got the idea for the movie.
0: Well, and I have to say, I, you know, I can see a daughter doing it, but a son doing this to his mother. Oh, Bill, Bill. <laughs> you know, I, I, I got to ask then, you know, how much of the dialogue that you came up with in the script actually came out of the mouths of your mother's? Because- oh, well,
4: that, that, I would say, that is a very low percentage, but, oh. um, but I will say, I think she enjoyed the book. Um, I think it was a pretty good gift, and although this year, I got a text from her right before Mother's Day, and she said, you know what, um, for Mother's Day this year, I would like Andy Garcia, so that's the evolution of the... So
3: clearly the book's worked.
0: Well, uh, I'm with your mom. I want Andy Garcia. I got and You've got yeah, Andy. Andy Garcia is one of the hottest leading men out there right now. He's going from book club to playing opposite as a love interest for Cher in Mamma Mia Two. Um,
4: yeah, he's having a good summer.
0: Uh, to, gosh, but you got him but, first.
3: But we, we cast first. We cast him first. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how did you go about? I'm very curious. For a lot of filmmakers out there, you want to adapt a book. You want to incorporate. You know a film or a TV series or a book of some sort as a premise within your own project. What kind of issues did you have in securing the rights from E.L. James to actually use the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy as a premise for the hijinks that take place in book club?
4: Yeah, so the original um, idea for us was... Obviously, to use the books, but we also were using them in a way where we just needed to get clearance for the covers, uh-huh. um, because we were not initially, you know, quoting the books or using anything um, story-wise or character-wise that was proprietary, right? Um, other than, you know, what was sort of in the sort of cultural zeitgeist. But then, when the movie was announced, Neil um, James and her team reached out to us, and we uh, were obviously really interested in knowing what we were doing with their <laughs> with their uh, franchise, and so we sent her the script. And luckily for us, she really um, responded very positively to it, and you know understood what we were doing, which is to say, we were sort of inspired by the by the reaction to the book, and we were more a, building a story around the. Um, the reaction to the book mm-hmm. than sort of the books themselves, um, and I think she really appreciated that we were being really respectful of what she had created and the impact that it had um, on the world.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she. A lot of people told us we were not going to be able to get the books. E.L. James would never let us, and she turned out to be incredibly supportive. Loved our movie. Loved the script. She gave us clearance on the covers, and she. Uh
0: is in our movie. Yeah, there's a, a there's, there's
4: a cameo. A secret cameo in there of, of E.L. James herself and oh. her husband. So
0: And now I gotta go back and watch it for a third time. Yeah, you, you know you just Yeah,
3: he, indeed catcher.
0: Oh my god. So now Bill, was it always your intent to direct this one to finally to finally get into that director's chair?
4: Um Initially, when we were writing this, it was really just a a writing and producing vehicle. But after uh, we had optioned the rights, and when we got them back, I think I was at a place um, professionally where I had written and I had produced, and it felt like a very natural next step. And and truthfully, it's one of those things where, um, as surprising as this may sound, it was material that not only because we had written it, but just thematically that I really – Connected with, and it really resonated for me. So it felt, even though it's a slightly unconventional first choice or first film choice, it was for me it was a really natural one because it was um, it was something that I actually really just you know I liked I liked the I liked what it was saying, um, and I liked tonally it's very much in line with my own sort of sensibility. So it felt really like a natural choice.
0: And and of course the fact that. You know, you're no stranger to star power having produced Redford's films. Um, you bring in the most legendary, some of the most legendary female actors in Hollywood history with Diane Keaton, with Jane Fonda, with Candace Bergen, with Mary Steenburgen. Then you bring in all the guys on top of that. And I love the fact that the guys are actually younger than the women than you pair them up with. That I thought was just fabulous. Yeah. But it's like... We
2: we really
4: like that, too. I mean, we like, we like sort of thumbing our nose at a few sort of taboo things. And obviously the books themselves um, reawakened a conversation about sort of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, when we paired it with going to an older... Using older actors, which is something that we wanted to do from the absolute sort of beginning... Um, And then wanting to play with that, you know, concept. We see older guys paired with younger girls all the time in Hollywood, and, you know, just it felt like a really fun sort of flip that um, on its head and and let the women have some younger guys. And I think, you know, to me it also it feels really – all those pairings feel really natural. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think hopefully that will start to realize, like, you know, these sexy, sophisticated older women –
0: have it going on you know and you have each one of them their characters are so they've got so much depth and texture to them uh not just not just the men they're not just you know cardboard cutouts thrown in there but the women are so substantive how important was that to you in developing these characters that they do have so much substance you bring into play the life experiences uh, of these women, so that there is something it 's like every line you see on their faces they have earned it. the characters have earned it, and we know that the actresses themselves have earned it um you 're not just riding on the star power here; you give them you know real meat and potatoes to dig into. How important was that to you in the structure of the story and the script, and also to the actresses you eventually I mean, hired. I-
2: yeah, it was it was essential. I mean, it
4: really was, and it was it was one of the things like from the get go, we really wanted to create um, really well-rounded characters, but also we wanted to try to you know, oftentimes when you have an ensemble, um, they don't all get their own story arc and their own sort of full realization. Mm-hmm. And for us, we really worked hard, um, which is tough in you know trying to do it inside the parameters of of a feature film and you know the hundred pages you get to on the writing, but we really wanted to give each of the actors and actresses their due, and so we, we worked really hard to develop characters that we felt were uh, sort of representative of the talent that we were going after and also that um, sort of embodied the type of history and iconography that they each had. And we
3: really wanted... To- we, we were in love with the idea, and we wanted to love each character equally. And uh, we feel really proud that we pulled off a script that actually gives every single, you know each one of them their full arc. And I think that's why the women and the actresses signed on, because a lot of them said they don't often get that, or they're playing the mother or the grandmother.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, I think that created an excitement, and it was sort of something new and different. So we're very proud of that. And very happy that you felt
0: that way. And, of course, you know, what better leading? You got Candace Bergen in there. And, of course, this is time to, the opening of the film was the same day that CBS dropped the new trailer for the Murphy Brown reboot. So every Murphy. Yeah,
4: which we're (laughs) we're very excited about, I must say. I mean, (laughs) I think the more Candace Bergen we have in the world, the better the world will be
0: she's amazing oh i still have on my refrigerator a kathy comic a comic from decades ago where a woman's kathy's laying on her couch looking at her dog and not doing anything and she goes oh god only seven more days till murphy brown and i've had that for <laughs> over 30 some years on my refrigerator it's got mildew and it's falling apart oh, but i will not get rid of it now finally I get Candace Bergen in this film, God. and I get Candace Bergen back on Murphy Brown. So you guys are making me real happy. I, I want you to know that. <laughs>
4: 2018 is looking, looking pretty bright for Candace Bergen
3: fans. Of all the decisions, of all the ideas and the decisions, I think the best one we made was going for Candace Bergen. I mean, I really think she, she hasn't been in a movie like this in a long time. No. and That's sad for all of us. I'm so glad she's. Back and that everybody's seeing how brilliant she
0: is. Well, something that I'm not sad at all about is your choice of Andrew Dunn as your cinematographer. He is so underrated as a cinematographer, but his work is so diverse. It's so beautiful. You look at the Lee Daniels, the butler, or you go back to Count of Monte Cristo or What a Girl Wants, and then Lady in the Van, all distinctly different. But he ha- has this great ability to capture the visual tonal bandwidth so perfectly to complement the story. What led you to Andrew as your cinematographer, Bill? Um, I'm so thrilled that, that you have him, um, but I'm curious because yeah, he's not he's the
4: first... absolute first choice. To be honest with you, he was the only uh, cinematographer that I uh, met with because as soon as he said yes, we were immediately... Um, immediately. And he was literally number one on our list. We sent him the script. He responded. We set a Skype call, because he's in the UK, mm-hmm. um, for 30 minutes. He and I ended up talking for almost two hours. And I literally, he was arguably the greatest hire on this movie, because not only is he talented, and not only does he have an incredible eye and is able to work swiftly, he is arguably one of the greatest human beings walking the planet. And that sounds hyperbolical, and it's true. I mean, he genuinely is like, he became such an incredible collaborator and partner on this movie. And everyone that I talk to, I tell, if you can get Andrew Dunn, you should get Andrew Dunn, because your project and your movie and your whole set experience will be greatly improved.
3: Yeah, Andrew Dunn comes in he just goes on his instincts completely when he loves something and he becomes so connected with the director. He's not coming in trying to, to do his his own thing or his own version. He actually feels like he channels who he works with and that's probably why he's able to do so many diverse projects. He's it's unbelievable. I mean, we you can, love him so much. You can
4: see too there's a lot of repeat repeat customers in the Andrew Dunn business mm-hmm. because everyone that works with him wants him again and again and again, and I certainly am going to be on top of that list of people if they yeah. will let me do this again. It will be he will be my first call.
3: You know what was your collaboration? Bizarrely, aside from all of his credible uh, credits, one of the things that excited me the most is that he did L.A. Story. I mean, how you go from Precious to L- <laughs> L.A. Story, which is so classic from childhood? I just was so exciting
0: to have him. You know, I'm I'm curious, Bill. You know. How did you and Andrew uh, collaborate in terms of were you shot listing, were you storyboarding, and what were your visual considerations? Because you keep the film so light, so fresh. The framing on it is impeccable. You really, you judiciously use close-ups. You really keep everything in a wider frame to encompass, metaphorically encompass the friendship of these four women and and the lives that they share. So I'm curious what your influences were and how the two of you actually collaborated to come up with the visual design.
4: Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, thank you very much. And, um, you know, what we did was we talked a lot. The the reality is the schedule and the budget limitations and parameters of this movie sort of dictated a certain pace. So we didn't have the time and sort of resources that... um, that we would have loved, but at the same time we worked feverishly and we also worked, you know, tirelessly all through pre-production to to plan. But one of the things that was really important to us because of the subject matter, because of our cast, um, we wanted to fill each frame. We wanted it to be, and partly because we were able to shoot in L.A., which is where the film was scripted, we really wanted everything to be sort of in full bloom and bright and beautiful and, no indications of um, of anything sort of wilting. So the frames are filled with bright greens, and there's a lot of flowers and a lot mm-hmm. of that just to further sort of the rhetoric of these women. To us, we in full bloom, and we're not fading. And we didn't want anything visually to indicate any any type of fading as well. And then, you know, the movie is built on friendship, and it's right. you know for us um, that was an essential component, and partly because of the structure of the screenplay where we have and we go and follow each of the four women individually at times, mm-hmm. the friendship we needed to make sure was always held um, in high regard and always sort of permeating the mind as we go off on individual storylines. So those those three book club scenes and then the couple other scenes where all of the women are together became real sort of uh, essential tent to to that friendship, and part mm-hmm. of that, that for us was letting the characters um, live and exist in the frame together, and I think, you know, sometimes um, you need to go to close-ups to sort of push for emotion, and for us, we had a cast that gave us, I mean, there's are such great actors that you could feel it all even if we stayed in a two-shot, so it gave us yeah. a tremendous, tremendous uh, ability to sort of keep everybody in um, in a frame, and still really feel um, feel this, feel the emotion, but also really feel the friendship and the other thing I just want to say is these the lead four did not um, they knew each other loosely but had never worked together, and they genuinely became friends and that you can feel for me like I feel that so much in watching the movie mm-hmm. I feel that friendship and it feels so or and that was something that we really um, you know. I give full credit to the cast. I mean, we, we had a plan in terms of how to capture it and let them exist in a frame together. But, like, the energy and that chemistry is something you really can't manufacture, and they brought that in space.
0: You know, and uh, be remiss not to mention, hand-in-hand hand with your visual, is your produ- – Rachel O'Toole's production design is beautiful. Your locations, I mean, walking up Robertson, we get a glimpse of the ivy. Restaurant out, you know, in behind them as they're walking up the street. Um, am I mistaken, or were you shooting in the montage for Jane Fonders? We yeah, no, we were at the montage. <laughs> <laughs> Junketeers will recognize it in spades. Uh, but the production That's, design, no, I know. the production design is beautiful. You look at the house for Diane Keaton, the interior, you look at the den for Candace Bergen, for the judge in her own home with the rich woods. And then you look at the ranch that Andy Garcia has. Your production design down to the minutest details within each room, absolutely impeccable. And it all reflects the impeccable taste that we immediately get a sense of for each of these women. Just outstanding.
4: Yeah. I mean, that was no... Small feet. I mean, again, we were we had really limited resources, and I mean when I say that, I mean really limited resources. So for us, uh, one of the things that was so important was to find locations that felt reflective of the characters, um, and then add a layer of um, of sort of specificity to really sort of custom tailor them to the specific character. But you mentioned Diane Keaton's home as an example, or Andy Garcia's ranch house. I mean those. The bones of those locations, they were such great finds, and Rachel did such a, a brilliant job of, of, A, defining the characters and, and sort of creating these mood boards that we um, referenced throughout production, and then also very sort of specifically finding little pieces that made it feel um, – Made it feel really specific to each character, and there was a you know there's a chair that she had found for Diane Keaton in Diane Keaton's bedroom, <clears throat> this white and black chair, and I remember the first day that Diane walked into the set and saw it, she was like, I have to have that, and it, it just shows the depth of research that Rachel did on each of the individual actors, and and uh, and, and Diane ended up taking the chair home, um, which was to me that's a that's a credit to really great production design if the if the cat, Feels that connected to the environment. You're doing a pretty good
3: job.
5: Wow.
4: Yeah,
3: and Rachel. I mean, our decorating budget. I can't remember exactly what Rachel said, but it was, you know, the equivalent of a, like a million dollar movie. So she she really had her work cut out for her, and she's so great at staying calm and just only getting exactly what is needed. She just I don't know. I don't know how she did it, but. It was pretty
0: amazing. Well, I have to tell yeah, you geez. the overall look of the film is I mean, this is a multi million dollar look. You know, you keep talk you you talk about, you know, the limited budget the budget restrictions and all. But I gotta tell you, every penny that you spent, we see it on that screen. I mean, it is beautiful.
5: Yeah.
4: Thank you. I mean, we really, you know, the, the truth is we because of the cat that we ended up. Getting and because of the sort of story we were trying to tell, I mean, it was really important to us that it felt um, like a big sort of studio movie. And this is before we had a studio backing us, but mm-hmm. it was, you know, that was always the intention. And so for us, it, it's that hard work. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, it was really hard work. Oh, yeah, that's the thing but that, that, it paid off. I mean, we really feel great about about the scope that we were able to. People get really through.
3: surprised because. Paramount, Paramount acquired us after the movie was already made, um, and then treated us like a studio movie and wow. marketed it, putting it wide. And that is a very, very uncommon occurrence. And that is a testament to all the hard work. I mean, everybody came to work. You know, nobody was getting paid what they normally get paid. Everyone was just excited to be there and worked worked so hard just for the for the love of the game. And so this has been a pretty miraculous. I mean to be number 3 after two, mar- you know, essentially Marvel movies. <laughs> it's something we never could have even dreamed of.
0: Well, you know, I we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you about your music supervisor Susan Jacobs because your needle drops in this film are so spectacular. You've got she found some obscure things, but everything is also so perfectly done and the music really does play a big part in defining these women and defining moments in their lives which are now playing out at this stage of their life you know how important was that uh, in working with Susan and uh, the decision she made to get you the songs you needed
4: yeah I mean music for us is is hugely important and for me I'm the type of person that, you know, when I'm writing, I like to write to music and always have sort of music in my mind. So it's it's a hugely important thing. I mean, the thing that Sue did so brilliantly was, was uh, deal-making because, you know, we had put some pretty outlandish songs in the movie for a movie of this size and given our um, music budget. But um, I remember the day where we put the Tom Petty song in, and it was literally Aaron and I were just sitting um, – thinking about songs and we we put it in just because we wanted a placeholder of something that had the right sort of tone and energy Mm -hmm. and it's a testament to sue's ability to go sort of make deals because she was able to uh then go figure out a way to get that song within the confines of again an incredibly incredibly tight budget but when i when i think about the artists that we have in this movie um it's they speak to it's not unlike the cast. It's like right. there's a whole super, sort of superhero level of musicians and talent on the music side, and we're just lucky that we were able to make those deals.
3: And all the, all those people loved the movie. They saw, they knew what it was about, and they they saw the scenes they were going to be in, and so they decided to support us. That's really what happened. So uh. we're going to see Paul Simon tomorrow night at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> yeah. That's hey, gonna be, we're pretty excited. <laughs> that Paul Simon song, I feel so honored to have in our movie and, and also the Crowded House song mm-hmm. in the Malibu date scene. is That's one of my favorite songs of all time, so I just can't believe that it's in our movie.
0: Okay, well I was just thrilled you had Meatloaf in there. Uh, that, that, oh yeah. my
5: gosh,
3: Meatloaf.
0: You would not expect Meatloaf, yeah, Meatloaf in a Loaf film those, like this. I mean,
4: that was one of those songs that we had in production, obviously, and we built a dance around it and you know that's one of those songs, and it's just like when that idea came up, Mary and Craig and ourselves, and we—it <laughs> was one of those where we're like, if nothing else, we're gonna have a pretty awesome dance sequence to a Meatloaf song. And uh, for me, that's that's almost worth the price of admission on its own.
0: Oh, trust me, that could be its own small music video. it, it is just—it's yeah. too much fun, guys. Unfortunately, we're all out of time. Great, by the
4: way, like how. Because Mary Steenburgen, I mean, she <laughs> actually can tap dance. I mean, she's just, she has so much talent, but uh, every time I watch it, and trust me, I've seen this movie a lot of times, every time, the joy that she's exuding in that moment, yeah. like, I feel every time, and it makes me smile no matter what. And it's, that's just such a, I don't know, I'm, Mary's one of those people that you just feel that positivity, and I feel like that scene is sort of reflective of her soul.
0: I've got to tell you, this is a movie that people will smile in from beginning to end. Um, you know, there we have so few movies like that. This one, you smile, your heart smiles, and everybody can see this. You don't have to be a woman of a certain age. You don't have to be a guy being drugged by a woman. People should run to see this film. It is just, it is truly one of my favorites of the year. I just absolutely love every element of this film. I can't recommend it highly enough.
4: Oh, so, thank you so much. It's thank so great you. to hear. I really appreciate
0: it. Uh, and, guys, unfortunately, it it so worth it. we're all out of time. I do hope you'll both come back on the show again. This has been an absolute thrill and a treat for me because I have admired, especially you, Bill, with the work that you've done, the producing you've done for so long. Uh, so this, for me, is a real personal, personal treat to have you guys on today. And I do hope you'll come back.
4: Well, that's so sweet. I really appreciate it. And uh, I would love to come back whenever you want me.
0: Oh, you thank too, you so Aaron. Much. You too. Not just Bill. You too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> guys thank you so much and for everybody listening book club in theaters now see it see it see it bye guys
5: bye thank you you.
0: bye and that was bill holderman and aaron sims bill writer director producer aaron sims co-writer producer book club it is one of my picks of the year we are all out of time we are over pam's in there grinning So, we are not here next week. It is Memorial Day weekend. Pam and I are taking a well-deserved Monday off. But we will be back on June 4th talking with the director of the Winner's Cup. And our good friend David Palomaro is back. He has another film. It's in Dances with Films, Murder Made Easy. David is going to be with us live on Monday, June 4th. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.